Good morning, everybody. I'm Jack Pitzer, and I'm uh, pinch hitting for uh, Amy. She told me she was being a good congressional wife campaigning in Michigan this weekend. <laughs> for those of you who were not here last week, uh, our speaker again is Dr. Jim Miskins, a member of Westminster who is the retired president of Queens College of the City College of New York system. He's currently commuting to New York City to teach at the Graduate Center of CCNY, and he's working on a book. His academic areas are philosophy and ethics, and I'm sure he's going to challenge us more today with what he's got to bring us. But before we begin, let us pray. Lord, creator of our wonderful universe, your son taught us the importance of providing for the least of these. He commanded us to feed the hungry, provide drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the unclothed, and care for the sick. This challenge has not lessened in the 21st century since he taught. In fact, it may be more complex than ever. Open our minds and hearts that we may learn how to fulfill Christ's charge to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Can you hear me back there? <laughs> All right. That better? You can hear me? All right. Well, welcome. As you heard, this is the second of uh, three sessions. Uh, some of you were here last time, perhaps most of you, but I'm sure a number of you were not here. So uh, what I'll do is uh, say a few things about last time and then get into... Uh, uh, today's topic. Uh, the first one was providing a lot of information, uh, and so is me doing a lot of talking. I'm going to do less talking today, and it happened just pure by purely by scheduling in the church that they wanted the table the room set up this way, uh, rather than having to change something this morning. And it is perfect for what I want to do. So, what will be necessary? is that we have at least four people at each table. Uh, don't ask me why, because that will keep you in suspense. Uh, if you're less than four, a burden will be heavy on you. Because <laughs> we're going to be doing some interactive stuff. All right. So, I also want to say that uh, my interest in this topic, in healthcare, is in policy, not politics. But, of course, politics drives our policy because politicians, officials, must make those decisions. And so, as I said the first time last week, when Amy and I decided we would do this last uh, fall, we didn't, last spring, we didn't realize this fall, at the very end of the campaign, we would be hearing about Obamacare and all of this every day. Uh, and as I think some of you discovered last time, what we're hearing on the airwaves and on the TV is not exactly correct. So we hope last time we were able to uh, make things a little clearer and, and a little uh, uh, more correct than uh, those stories. But we know with the election coming up in two days, so I'll be political here for a second, whatever the result, health care is in for radical change. Uh, it's going to be 
changes in how we deliver health care and how we pay for health care workers, how we get access to health care, no matter what. So I thought it might be appropriate today to start with a story about Albert Einstein. It's an apocryphal story, as most of these are. But it seems that uh, Albert Einstein got on the train at Princeton Junction and uh, got comfortably seated in his car, Amtrak. And a few minutes later, the conductor came in and said, Tickets, please, tickets, please, have your tickets ready. So Albert Einstein reaches in his pockets. Soon he has his coat off. Soon he has the contents of his briefcase on the seat next to him, frantically looking for his ticket. Well, the conductor noticed this elderly gentleman over there was none other than the great Albert Einstein. Seeing him frantic, the conductor went over and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about your ticket. Your credit is good with the railroad. <laughs> Albert Einstein looked up and said, young man, the question isn't whether I'll pay. It's where am I headed? <laughs> That's our problem today. We don't know uh, where we're headed, but as I said, we're on the brink of, of uh, rapid change. And, and as you know, I'm in higher education. The same thing is true for higher education. The kinds of changes that have to take place in healthcare delivery are similar to the kinds of things that have to take place in higher education. And I can tell you, having been a president of an institution for quite a few years, no one really likes change unless it's somebody else doing the changing. So, uh, the topic of our, or the, not the topic, but the heading of our uh, series is Navigating the Seas of Change. Uh, and so certainly that's what we're trying to do. And quickly, uh, I'll talk a little bit about what we talked about. And then at the end of last class, there was a question about cost and why it's so expensive. We'll answer that question. Then we'll get to new material, and that's when it'll be helpful for you to be sitting at tables because you'll be discussing things at the table. So one of the things we saw last time is that the U.S. healthcare delivery system falls short on cost, access, and efficiency. We spend so much, 17.1% of our gross national product on healthcare, and that's simply unsustainable. Certainly, as a college president, I saw that as unsustainable because we were trying to get money from Albany as well as the people supporting health care. And we want transportation. We want those other things. Our country is at least double in terms of the amount we spend on health care compared to any of the other 55 industrialized nations. So that's unsustainable. The good news is the rate of growth is slowing in recent years. And access has increased. The bad news <coughs> is that painful and tough decisions, how we're going to curtail costs of, of, uh, of health care, loom before us. Here's another, I think, sad fact. We lag other industrial nations in the percent of residents who do not have health care. Now, we hear so much criticism of the Affordable Care Act, and it did not meet the goals that were set when it began. However, we have moved from 40 million without health care 
fewer than 28 million today. And actually, it's better news than that. That's from uh, 2015. Uh, the uninsured rate in 2010, before the ACA, was, if I can get my little pointer here, was 18.2%. Uh, it's now actually down to 9.1% in 2016. But the bad news, significant improvement requires restructuring, and that will result in winners and losers. So much of the political debate that we're not talking about is concern of the losers uh, and uh, winners wanting to try to make sure they really win. Here's our situation. We have roughly 320 million people in our country. Half of them are insured by their employer or have other kinds of insurance related to that. 55 million have Medicare, probably a fair large, fairly large number of those of us in this room. Uh, 65 million have Medicaid or they're part of the children's uh, health insurance program that uh, has been much in the news. Uh, 12 million now have the afford are covered by the affordable care coverage. The hope had been that would be 20 million by now. Uh, but as you know, we talk about many of these things. There have been lots of resistance to uh, signing up or to thinking it should even be something available to people. Um, and uh, so what the Affordable Care Act was designed to do was to deal with the 40 million people who were left out. And it's almost reached now 20 million, but there's some 22 or 23 million, uh, that, uh, 28 there, but that's a little better now, uh, that are still without insurance. Let's see, did I miss one? Sorry, I'm having trouble. Okay, I did that one. All right. Quickly, because we want to get on to other things. Just for those of you who were not here last time, what does the Affordable Care Act attempt to do? The first thing is it requires in, uh, <clears throat> insurers to provide coverage to everybody. Can't be denied if you have a pre-existing condition. A rather popular idea, but a hugely challenging one. Also requires, the second bullet there, that everyone obtain health insurance. And third, provide subsidies to individuals and families who couldn't afford insurance unless they have some help. And then the idea, which sort of worked and sort of didn't, was states would expand Medicaid to cover those who simply couldn't afford insurance. Uh, 19 states decided not to go along with that because the Supreme Court said they weren't required to, as we talked about last time. Virginia was one of the 19. And as you may know, there are huge numbers of very poor people in southern Virginia um, <clears throat> who don't have insurance, whereas if you go to neighboring Kentucky, uh, they do. So uh, that was the idea. This strategy, in order to get those 40 million who are not included, included. Now, this is not a government-run program, but there's a government mandate. You must buy insurance. 
And the reason for that was insurance requires a large pool. And if only the sick join in, the insurance companies can't make it. And that's sort of what happened because young people were strongly discouraged not to sign up. Uh, and the penalty for not signing up is not very great. So that's quickly kind of where we are. Uh, that sort of summarizes what I just said. So we have two goals, and they're in real tension. And this is why it's going to be so difficult in the coming years, no matter who our leadership is, to deal with this issue. We want to provide access to larger numbers of people, but at the same time, we want to cut costs. We want to bring down the 17.9% of gross national product on health care to something uh, less than that. Now, here was the question of last time. Um, why does it cost so much in the U.S. compared to other places? Well, one thing is administrative costs are far higher than in other countries. I was trying to find the statistic. I couldn't this morning, but uh, uh, at one of our major medical centers, there are more people processing insurance forms than beds in the medical facility. That's expensive. Uh, we pay more for many things than other countries do. Uh, that includes drugs. And as you know, pharmaceuticals is something that's driving us crazy right now. Uh, we pay much more in part because the government does not, some parts of the government at least, do not want to allow us to buy in bulk. Uh, and there are lots of, uh, I'm not going to, these are really complicated issues. Uh, also, Americans receive more medical care than people in other countries. Defensive medicine, what that means is if you're a physician, you worry about being sued, so why not run the next several tests, do an MRI, even if you're absolutely certain there's no problem, because you know if the little child who fell has a problem, you're in serious trouble. Uh, and then our fee-for-service model. You get paid for doing things rather than, for example, making sure the people who are under your care are healthy. So all those things have contributed to um, health care being very expensive. Now, I just want to say one thing I said at the outset of last time. Health care in the United States is the best in the world on so many measures. And I and my family have been truly beneficiaries of the advancements in medical care. So I'm not bashing medical care. I'm just telling us collectively we have a real challenge. So now, I want to be the philosopher I trained to be. We're going to ask two questions uh, this time and next time. The first question, and this is the question we're turning to now, is a philosophical question. Would an affluent society such as ours be an unjust one if it did not provide to all its poor and indigent residents a means of access to health care? That's the first question. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then I'm hoping that next time we can get to what I call a theological question. That is, what responsibilities do we as Christians uh, have? And that's going to be complicated if we say we must be involved because we'll have to get into the nitty and gritty of politics to do it. Uh, but the question is, does our commitment to Christian ethics 
entail that we have a collective duty to support public policies in favor of providing a means of access to a decent minimum of health care for all those in our midst who are in need. Okay. So let's follow up on whether uh, we have a moral obligation. Um, philosophical question. Is it only the fair thing to do to provide this care? We're going to look at the fairness issue today. Is it owed to people? Uh, in philosophy, we talk about rights. I'm not going to talk about whether we have rights or inalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and if we should have a right to health care the way we have a right to police and fire protection. That's a different discussion. I'm going to talk about whether it's just in an affluent society such as ours not to provide a decent minimum of health care to all people in the country. That's the question. So different philosophical questions. And then what obligations, if any, do citizens have to advance universal access? If we have time, that will come next week. I found it interesting as a philosopher, as someone who thinks about community and what does it mean to be a citizen, to have us encouraging people to be free riders. Uh, if you don't take insurance, but something terrible happens to you, we do take care of you. And then all of those who were willing to, p to play do pay for you. Uh, yet we've sort of elevated that as a good thing. That is also a question I'm not going to go to right now. Uh, we're going to go to the question of justice. You all know that symbol? For our talk today, the really important thing is right there. Justice is blind. Now we're going to talk about how it's blind and it's weighing things. Uh, and... So I'll say a few more things here, and then we're going to uh, play two games. And that's why I wanted to make sure you two are going to want to be maybe at the side of the table in a moment. Otherwise, uh, each table has to report out. Uh, the burden will be uh, uh, great on, on you. But anyway, uh, let's go to what we mean by requirements of justice. I've asked this question now several times. Uh, would an affluent just society create a legal right to essential and basic health care for all residents. Now, if we would say yes, that's what we're going to talk about in a minute in our game, then the U.S. ought to do so because we are one of those affluent countries, assuming we can do it. And I won't go back into that. We discussed that last time. Uh, but given the high cost, we can't add more to the cost to do this. So... Um, Unless we change our health care system radically, we would not be able to provide uh, care for all, basic, decent care for all who need it. And so do we have a moral obligation to do so? So my challenge to you is if we decide through our game that, yes, everyone ought to have access to a basic, decent minimum of health care, then what's going to give? What are we going to do? Who's, whose salaries are going to be cut? Will we decide all people working in healthcare must be paid much less? Or must they be salaried people rather than... You know, those are hard questions. Um, <clears throat> now, 
justice we're going to talk about as fairness. Um, and one of the concepts that I think is bred into us is equals ought to be treated equally. We have two small grandchildren, ages three and four. If we gave one of them a matchbox car and not the other one, the evening would be unpleasant. <laughs> and the one who didn't get it would be asking lots of questions. Now, what I might say, I'll just be really nasty here. Well, look, you're a boy, you're a girl, she's a, he's a boy, he gets it, you don't. They might sort of think that's not really fair. So the general principle, and if this were my philosophy course, we would spend six hours on this topic, but the general principle is if you're going to discriminate, if you're going to say, I can give this to you, but you don't get this, there has to be some morally relevant reason for doing so. So let's just run through a couple possibilities. Um, police and fire protection. We'd probably say that's something that should be distributed across anyone. And, but you could have a system where only the people able to pay would get fire protection. Or only the people who are white would get fire protection. Not the society we want. Uh, or whatever. So for distributing something like that, those kinds of things would be unfair. For K-12 education, in our country decided that should be available to everyone. And of course, big debates over the years is have we really provided equal opportunities across the board? Um, admission to college. That's something I was involved with. Uh, there was a time when race and gender were seen as okay factors to decide, no, she can't come in. Uh, he's Jewish, he can't come in. Maybe now we do it on income and ability to pay. Uh, we use SAT scores, which may mean we're using class, because that's strongest correlation. If we say we decide someone can come in on intellectual promise, we say, that seems to be a morally relevant reason for a different treatment. This person can come in and this not. Or accomplishments. Uh, this person really accomplished something. Or if we have scholarships. Another debate I had as president. Uh, should we be giving scholarships to students who have real promise? Or should we be giving scholarships to those students who do have promise but really have financial need? Need-based scholarships or merit-based scholarships? Big controversy, and it all has to do with justice and fairness. Uh, jobs. If we're looking for a job, well, then certainly we can discriminate among people on intellectual promise or accomplishments. Or if we're giving out things like Nobel Prizes, we look at accomplishments. So, quickly, so I say justice, if you're going to say two people should be treated differently, you need a morally relevant reason when we could accept it. Yeah, that's a reason to, to treat one uh, differently uh, from the other. So, this summarizes kind of what I was talking about, but now let's suppose we apply this to the topic of the day, which is healthcare. Should it be delivered, offered, distributed? We're talking, by the way, about justice, distributive justice. That means how do you distribute the goods or the responsibilities? Next week, we're going to get more to that question of 
right, what obligations do we have? Because distributive justice isn't just getting the goods and services. It's also doing your part for the community. Um, or should it be on ability to pay, which it is now, or on merit? Uh, you may, some of you recall, way back when dialysis machines were first developed, uh, quickly, far more people needed dialysis to stay alive than could get it. And so committees were set up, and they would say, well, this person is a pillar of the community. This person is, let's say, a prostitute. Just to quickly make our contrast. Uh, so, the scarce resource will go to this worthy citizen rather than her. In Seattle, they had such a committee, and they did that, and they said, wait, this is wrong. We can't play God. It must simply be by lottery back to need. You can't, can't do it everywhere. Uh, or you could perhaps distribute health care by age. Those of us who have Medicare, and if you're happy with it as I am, no, you can't get that if you're 50. Uh, or by employment status. That's half of the people in the country. Or perhaps it's at least citizenship. And by the way, the Affordable Care Act only is available to citizens. And that's why at least 10 million of those 40 million would not be covered under uh, that plan. All right, so now we're going to do the game. And uh, I'm going to ask my wife to hand out a few of those at each table. And if you could do the same. Uh, and uh, you're going to be talking amongst yourself. So it's best if you have like four or five people at a table rather than just two. Uh, and so if you don't mind, if you're at a, a table with just a few, just join another table. And at each table, we won't have enough of these for everybody. I didn't know how many people come. But uh, I will go through it uh, for you. Uh, <coughs> and, uh, and then those you can share looking at it. Sure, 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 sure. Not necessarily, no. I mean, there would be different responsibilities. The question is whether we think the government has an obligation to provide children education and to provide police protection to anybody. Do we see that to ourselves, through our, our personal judgment, or through the collective? Through the collective. I mean, I'm trying to talk about through the collective to see how far we want to go. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm assuming... As the next game will show, at least government is best. But how do we meet what we might think of collective responsibility? Good question. Any other question before I tell you what the game is? Oh, sorry. Okay, if you have access to a page, you can follow along. But um, some of you probably heard of John Rawls, A Theory of Justice. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Rawls, he's, uh, he's no longer living, Harvard professor. It happens that when I was getting my PhD at the University of Michigan, he was writing this book. And uh, my professor was a good friend of his, and so I had access to early drafts. So 
I'm using this as an example. There are many other theories of justice, but John Rawls has had the greatest impact among philosophers and political scientists of any ethicist in the last 50 years. Uh, so his book was The Theory of Justice. Now, the game I'm asking you to play is my own. He didn't develop a game like this. But philosophy has a real problem in that uh, we can't be like a physicist do controlled experiments. So what we try to do is thought experiments. So you have to engage with me, play along with me. You have to accept certain rules so that we've set up a condition where you can then focus on what you really need to focus on, which is the ethics. So if you have the sheet there, I'm calling this a thought experiment inspired by John Rawls. So the goal of the game is to agree at your table on a set of principles for distribution of goods and services and communal obligations for a new society. Now, that's, that would take years, but I'm going to give you five, five choices, four, four to make it. We do this in class. I'm making this a really abridged, simplified version. So don't criticize me that life is more complicated because we're just trying to get to... to uh, so the set, here's the setting of the game. You have to be imaginary with me. Uh, it's a future time when a distant planet is going to be colonized, providing an opportunity to create its own social and political organization. So we imagine a whole bunch of, of people like us going off to this new place, starting a whole new society. And now, imagine this as well. You have won a lucrative contract to represent the interests of a group of these colonists you're going to represent them at a high commission that's going to make the determination which of the rules of distribution will be the guiding rule for the new society. We're together so far? Got that? Okay. Now, truly important, the next thing. Your task is made especially challenging in that you must operate behind, and this is the term of John Rawls, a veil of ignorance. Now, let's talk about what that is. You do not know the identity of your clients. You don't know anything about them. They may be male or female. They may be highly capable or minimally functional. They may be young. They may be old. They may be creative and entrepreneurial, or they may be plotters. Uh, they may be rich or poor, strong or weak, risk takers or risk averse. So, your consultants, getting good pay for this. That's why I'm trying to make you really serious after this, right? Um, and that's what you know and don't know about your client. Now, another condition. This is just so it makes it easier for you to focus on the issue of distributive justice and not all the other things. The last paragraph on that page says, some things in the new society have already been settled. So, imagine the high commission's already been working and they've decided that uh, you'll have basic rights in the new colony, freedom of conscience, religion, expression, and so on. That'll all be guaranteed. And with that assured, you can focus on identifying which one of the four options on the back side of that page will be the best for your client. So turn the page over. We'll look at these four. Then you'll have time to talk amongst yourselves. I want you to look at each option. Think about your clients, not think about what you would prefer, but what would be best if you're going to really fairly represent 
your clients. So the first would be, we're going to operate on laissez-faire capitalism. And again, please bear with me. I'm being very simplistic here because we don't have time. to. Uh, markets will operate without government intervention, except to protect private property, and to place very modest limits on the emergence of monopolies and so on. Um, those who are able to accumulate wealth will thrive and be the drivers for greater wealth. That's one option for distribution of goods and services and obligations. Second, capitalism with basic needs safety net. Now here, everyone will have a basic needs safety net guaranteed by the government, including police protection if in danger, social security, shelter if homeless, food if hungry, health care if dying. Above that level, markets will determine rewards, except as the democratic elected legislature chooses to constrain them. It's option two. Option three, capitalism with constraints on inequalities. The goal is e in this version is equality of opportunity in a well-managed society. Now, government will be a heavier hand in this one. Inequalities of resources and rewards will be accepted as long as the least advantaged will be better off with the inequalities than they would be uh, if you didn't have that arrangement. So, for example, if I'm the CEO of Corporation General Motors and I make $10 million a year, the only way that could be justified is if by my making that amount of money, the people on the assembly line are better off than they would be if I didn't do that. Okay. Now, well, I guess I gave you an example just like that, so you can read that example. Then finally, new socialism based on an old maxim, from each according to ability to each according to need. You've heard that one before. The key distribution principle is equality of resources. Since the society is being created anew, Everyone should start with no personal belongings or special privileges. As resources are collectively generated, goods and services will be distributed to each according to each individual's need. The aim of the distribution will be to give everyone a chance at living a life of dignity and service with a deep sense of belonging to a community. Now, this is a prelude to the second game, which will get us to health care. So, but I just, this is kind of the warm-up exercise. Yeah. Yes, just like us. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, um, if I had more time, we would go into all that. What's, what's behind the veil of ignorance? You do know that people are motivated just like we are, and people have envy just the way we do, and, and all that. Yeah. I have another question. Yeah. You, you said that we are going in totally ignorant of which population we are representing. Is that correct? That's right. You, well, you assuming there are different populations. Yeah, you... Some people who are going to be going to the colony have contracted for your services. But you don't know who they are on those reasons. And so you have to go to the High Commission and say, which of these four, no, simplified versions here, would be best for them? So that's, so justice is blind. That's the blind principle. And we're going to try to see where we go. We'll not take a long time on this because I do want to get to the second game, which will have to do with the topic of today. But we need to do this game first kind of as a warm-up. So get started uh, and uh, talk amongst yourselves and see if your table can agree on which one and then the best reason for that.
I made it simplistic, but it still is very complicated. Uh, but just we're going to just get a reading here. So, as I said, you're obligated to come next time because we're going to go a new game, which we'll get to what kind of health care we want. Uh, but I do want to have time here before we have to uh, stop to hear from each table what your decision was to vote and what your main reason was for it. What table would like to start? Good. All right. <laughs> now, this is a philosophy game. I accept the rules. You may not do that. Okay. Uh, we voted very closely for two. For two, okay. Um, and I'm not sure we got to all the reasons why. All right. Um, we did, um, Connie brought up the, the fact that none of these spoke to the responsibility of the individual. Okay. Or only to the rights mm -hmm. of the individual. All right. All right, so that ruled out four for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. How about table back in the corner? All right. So that was what tipped you toward option three. Yeah, and we said we'd have to watch out for disincentives, like making sure like people are off welfare, like mm -hmm. differences. So we right. had that sense of effort, but we okay. were also, and then thinking about the mechanism, how this, how this works, and how we're going to affect Good. Yeah, okay, good. Well, we'll come back to that. Yes, this table. Okay, well, we were looking at what was the most, we thought would be the most sustainable in the long run and help the most people in the long run. And since we didn't know what our population was, mm -hmm. we uh, we could argue whether number one is what formed the United States, but we don't know if the population will have our uh, the, mm -hmm. the idea that you build a library with what you have left over type uh, that uh, was prevalent in the past. And of course, there are a lot of people that fall through the cracks and lost that spare. We basically would, and number four, we think that we agree that it's not always been sustainable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Number three, we like that, but we wondered whether there would be total gridlock in trying to figure out what was equitable hmm. and that nothing would ever be done productively. It would cut off okay. the means of production. So we ended up with number four, uh, three, or two. Two, yeah. That was okay. the basic needs. Partially, we feel comfortable with that system because we feel that most of us feel that's what we have here today. Mm -hmm. Now, there was some dissent that we really, uh, I don't think anybody wanted four or one for yeah. the various reasons. Okay. Uh, there was some dissent that maybe uh, we should aim a little more toward three. Okay. Uh, but basically, we felt that this had the best shot at not stifling creativity, mm -hmm. but providing for the, the, most, the, the most needy. Okay. How about this table over here? Good.
So was that the majority vote? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. This table. Yeah. Oh no. Okay. And the table back there? We were evenly divided between two and three. I'm sorry. They didn't fall to me. Yeah. And, and maybe I'm putting Puritan people's mouth a little bit because we didn't have much chance to finish our discussion. But it seemed to some extent to be a difference between do we trust the government to provide health care or to provide for people or do we trust free enterprise? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, did we get all the tables? Right, so, John Rawls, in his book, argues for three. Uh, Strong emphasis on uh, concerns about inequality. Uh, Two I wrote to be essentially policy we have now. And the thing about healthcare if you die we have a rule in this country that if you're brought to an emergency room, no matter what, you have to be cared for. But other care we think of as an individual's responsibility. Uh, but that's the concern right now. Uh, that was the initial opposition to uh, uh, President Johnson's Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, so what we're talking about is exactly the issue we have before us. And we in our country for since it's before it's well since it's founding before we became a, a country have had this debate so i wanted to talk abstractly about this so we have some idea that if we're going to try to be activists in any way as christians we're involved in politics in that sense we have to come down on that but now but i totally misjudged time because i'm used to, i'm an it to have much longer time uh, and we have 15 weeks but longer sessions. Um, So that was very simplified. Uh, If it were a class, we would have spent time talking about these different models with political scientists and so on and so on. Uh, But we're going to do another game next time. We'll start next time. And that's going to be similar to this. You'll have clients who don't know anything about their their particular characteristics. And I'm going to give you some options on health care. And we'll do the same thing. That will start it. But then a number of you have come up to me and you've had other questions you'd like to deal with. Like I just in passing mentioned rationing. That's always been a dirty word in our country, but we do it. We definitely do it. Uh, One of the big issues is whether we should be providing so much health care to those of us who are in the last six weeks of our lives. So there are lots of questions like that that I don't want to avoid. 
So what I'll try to do is play the game on justice. And we talk a little bit about rights. That's a whole other way to approach it. We're just trying to look at what would be fair. Uh, and uh, then we'll have much more discussion next time. Any final observation or comment or question? We have two minutes if we want them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm not sure whether this was ever true, but it was something that I had heard was that the American Medical Association had a quota on how many students were allowed into medical school. Do you know whether that was true or not? I don't know whether that's true. I've certainly heard it. Uh, I have found I have to be skeptical of almost everything I read. Uh, and so I don't know, except I do trust a number of organizations that put out data. So I do trust the data that of those 55 industrial countries that I compared us with last time, we're at the bottom in terms of number of general practitioners per population. Uh, but I don't know the reason for that. Uh, and of course, another thing that's been big in the news is should we have physician practitioners, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants doing a lot more and have more of those? And there's been a lot of opposition to that because it, it does mean some people lose and some people win. Yeah. Just to look ahead, one possibility is get rid of the insurance companies, just as options. Yeah. Uh, you're not supposed to applaud. That's just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here, we got a minute left. Let's take that up next time. And, and obviously, those different choices. The choice number four, we've had attempts at that, and they've fallen, faltered precisely for that reason. Yeah. Philosophically, I'd just be interested, this is a pretty homogeneous group, mm -hmm. whether those options were presented to different populations based on race, economics, or social standing, and where they would choose. Oh, yeah. I mean, the... This is my game, but games like this have been played at all different universities of different makeup. Uh, but and still a homogeneous group in a university. Well, yes and no. I mean, at Queens we had, yeah, but anyway. True, true. Yeah, we weren't talking with uh, the people in southern Virginia who are really suffering right and now. And who think they have something to contribute. Right. That they right. have a work ethic right. that probably belies a lot of yeah, and by the way, I'm talking here about the ethics of it. One could also talk about the pragmatics of it. And one could make an argument that you ought to have a society where people actually could get to the starting gate. 
But if you are really sick and immobile, you don't get to the starting gate. Uh, but my field is ethics, so I'm staying with that. But a quick, a quick story. Then we, uh, years ago, I was asked at a university to be the head of the Animal Care and Use Committee. I mean, research with animals. You have to treat them right. And the government has all sorts of regulations. Since I was asked to do it and I was in ethics, I did seminars with the researchers. And then the experts would come and we failed the tests. But at that time, Columbia University had a primate lab and they failed altogether and they were closed down. So I went back to these researchers and I said, if you don't do this, you'll be closed down. Overnight, we met all the regulations. That was so disconcerting to me as a young person interested in ethics because I thought ethics would carry the day, but something else did. So anyway, we're talking about ethics, but there will be practical issues like whether we have incentive built into it to have to be. Final comment. Question. Yeah. You think after next session, uh, we can send some suggestions and recommendations to our next president? <laughs> <laughs> whether it'll do any good, I don't know, but sure we could. All right, thank you. Thank you.